What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Bob Left Sets podcast. For those of you new to the show, I interview musicians, tech stars, business people, and hope to give you some entertainment and some education at the same time. For those who've been listening for a year already, you know the drill. My guest today is songwriter and performer extraordinaire Carla Bonoff. I normally don't give a huge intro, but I'm going to with this case. How did we know the name Carla Bonoff? She wrote songs on the Linda Ronstadt album, Hasten Down the Wind. And I moved to L.A. permanently. I was here a little bit before that, but permanently in the summer of 76. And I used to go to this record store, which no longer exists, called Grammy and Granny Records in Westwood. And one of the benefits of living in Los Angeles is you could buy promo records. People cash them in. This is when it was still vinyl before CD. I got a few tales about selling my uh, promo CDs. But... In the bin, I saw Carla's debut album, okay? I still have it with a price sticker on it because I kept all my vinyl. It could have been, it was either $1.99 or $2.47, and I came home and I played it. I loved it so much, I literally went back and bought all the copies and gave them to my friends. And I could tell you story after story about turning people on to the first album. In any event, Carla, glad to have you on the show. Thank you. It's a privilege to be here. So, how did you get those tracks on the Ronstadt album? Oh, wow. There's a lot of history. I mean, we uh, want all the history. Yeah. That's what this show is about. Well, it, it really goes back to Kenny Edwards. Okay. Tell my audience who Kenny Edwards was. Kenny Edwards was, was an incredible musician um, and songwriter, but he began in the Stone Ponies with Linda Ronstadt. So, when Linda came out from Tucson with Bobby Kimmel, and they got together with Kenny and they formed that band. So, I met Kenny right after the Stone Ponies broke up, and we started our own band with Wendy Waldman and myself and Andrew Gold um, called Brindle. 
So we got signed to A&M. We made a record. They dropped us. It fell apart. And Kenny and Andrew went back and started playing in Linda's band right about the time she was really hitting it big with that right. heart like a wheel. So Kenny would go off on these tours, and I would I was writing, and I would give him cassettes and, you know, hey, maybe just put this in Linda's purse and... Um, nothing would ever happen really with it. And then one, one day he called me up, he goes, you know, I decided maybe if I just picked up a guitar and played the song for her myself, um, and she would hear it. And he did that at a sound check. He played her Lose Again and she totally loved it. And they learned it right there and it, it was in the show. And so they came back to play the Universal Amphitheater. She was playing like 12 nights. That was when Oh, she right, was, back in the old days before right. there was a roof, before they tore it down. No roof. And, yeah, that was, a fun, that was a fun run. But that's when she started doing them. So, Okay, that's Lose Again. That was Lose she Again. She did three. She did If He's Ever Near, and she also so did Something she, to Lay Down Beside So me. she was getting ready to make the next record, I guess, um, Hasten Down the Wind. So then... Then she asked me if I had more. So then I just started, I go, well, how about this one? How about this one? So that's how it ended up being three. Once I think her mind kind of opened up to the idea, then she, then all of a sudden it was three. And it was kind of weird for me because I was getting ready to make my own record too. I didn't have a whole lot of other songs. Those were my good songs. So we can talk about that. But I ended up recording them. All those same three songs. Right, too. right. And I think your versions are much better. Usually the person who uh, wrote the song adds something extra that someone does not. But without making it about Ronstadt, how did you feel? I mean, this is a totally different era. There are many fewer records out. Linda Ronstadt, one of the biggest acts in the country. And she's going to record your tracks. And in addition, you're going to get paid. So what was going on in your brain? Well, I mean, it was huge for me because I'd been, you know, playing with my sister and playing in Brindle and playing the Troubadour. And I mean, I'd been out there for 10 years, really, from the time I was 15 till maybe 25 when this happened, just, you know, not going to college, trying to make a living. So it was like an overnight for me, like three songs on that album. You're right. I mean, not only the recognition, but the fact that I would suddenly probably make like a serious amount of money for me. Okay, so we, so how long did it take to see a check after the album came out? Oh, God. I'm trying to remember. It takes a while. I know. That's why I'm asking. Yeah, probably a year. Okay. Yeah. So when the money came in, did you treat yourself to anything? Well, I actually had a business manager who was also Linda's business manager, and he said to me, you, you need to either buy a house— or invest your money, or do something, because otherwise Uncle Sam's just going right. to take it. And he was a great business manager, and so I bought my first house, which I lived in for 21 years. So, like, Where was that house? In the Hollywood Hills. Okay, and now you live in Santa Barbara. I think that's a well-known fact. We're not going to give the street. Right. Um, did you move from Hollywood to Santa Barbara, or was there someplace in between? No, I moved straight from 21 years in the Hollywood Hills to Santa Barbara. And what was the decision there? The decision, I think, was the fact that, A, the music business was not really, you know, centered here. Right. I was touring mostly. And I realized I can fly from anywhere. I don't have to live here to go on the road. And I think also the traffic had gotten so bad <laughs> that I wasn't leaving my house. I was stuck in my house, except for maybe these these hours between like 11 and 1 where you could go out and right, do something. Right, right, right. 
And I just went, why am I doing this? I don't need to live here. I don't have a job here. Um, and I, I was tired. You know, I'm born and raised here. I wanted to live somewhere different. I never lived So anywhere. how many years ago did you move to Santa Barbara? Uh, 20 years ago now. Yeah. Okay. And that worked for you. You were glad oh, about the decision. Yeah. I wish I'd done it sooner. Okay. Let's go back to the beginning. You're born and raised here where? West L.A. West L.A. I mean, for those of us, I literally live in West L.A., so where in West L.A.? Right near UCLA on a street called Warner Avenue. Okay. I don't – I can't – I know the street. Where is that? Do you know right? where Hillgard Avenue of is? Of course. So as Hillgard comes down to Wilshire, it turns kind of into Warner. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it goes by UCLA. So exactly. right there. Okay. For those people who don't know, just really right by beside UCLA. So in Westwood, which of course in the 70s – was the hippest place in L.A., and now it's a ghost town. Really? Oh, yeah. Well, when my parents bought this house in the, you know, in the 50s or 40s, um, you know, it was a little college town. It was a sleepy college town. You know, they wanted to live there because it was, you know, quiet. Okay, let's stay there. Your parents or your father did what for a living? My father was a radiologist. Okay. And so was my grandfather. My grandfather um, was the first radiologist in Los Angeles, actually. First radio? Wow. Because doctors didn't specialize then. They were general practitioners. So he went to USC and, and actually specialized in being a radiologist. This is your grandfather. My grandfather. And then your father followed in his footsteps. Correct. And okay, so he's married to your mother. Did your parents stay married? Yeah. Okay, and how many kids? Two. I have an older sister. An older sister. What's she up to or what was her life about? Um, she and I played music together a lot and starting as teenagers. Um, and then she decided she didn't really like it that much. So she went back to school and got a Ph.D. at UCLA. In what? In history of religions. And, and what was her career if, if there was one after the she Ph.D.? She ended up teaching college. Okay, so you're there, and did your parents make you take piano lessons at oh, a young? Oh yeah, yeah. Every young Jewish kid has to right. take piano lessons. I certainly lessons. did. <laughs> so, what age did you start at? Um, pro- young, like five, six, seven. We had a very strict Russian piano teacher. And that was your parents' idea, not your idea. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, and did you practice? Yeah, I did, but it was. She expected a lot, like two, three hours of practicing, reading music. And so I developed a definite distaste for it and, and finally rebelled and went, I don't want to do this anymore. How, after how many years? After three or four. I think by the time I was eight or nine, I was, no, I don't want to do this. And uh, did you give up music completely, playing music at that no, point? No, no. I played clarinet. Well, in school? Yeah, in like, yeah, in sixth grade orchestra. Do you think you could still play it? Oh, God, I don't know. Okay, six, and when you go to school where? I went to school at University Elementary School, which was part of UCLA, which was kind of an experimental grammar school. Very liberal arts oriented, lots of music and art. Um, I love that. Um, it's on the campus of UCLA, really. And, and then, then I went into public school, which was horrible for me. Where, where was high school? University High School. Right, in West L.A., yeah. where a lot of musicians actually went both before and after you. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're in your house. Now, it's hard for me to view this through the eyes of a woman, but in my era, we're very similar ages, um, you got a transistor radio, okay, which was a really big deal. And 
when you were a boy, you listened to sports first. So were you a radio listener? Were you addicted in that way? Yeah, I remember having that transistor radio and listening to KFWB, B. Mitchell Reed. <laughs> but B. Mitchell Reed late at night would play things like the Stone Ponies. That's where I was hearing music like that. Okay, but what year? I mean, I, let's, let's go back. Before, when the Beatles hit in 64. Right. Are you listening to the radio? Are you up on popular music? Or is that a turning point? Oh, yeah. I was listening to all of it. Basically, Beatles and Motown on transistor radio. Was it KHJ? I'm trying to remember Right, these. right. KHJ, definitely. Yeah. But before that, because there literally was Beatlemania. Were a big, you a big music, popular music fan? Well, I'm trying to place my years, but I mean, what would what would have been before that? I think. Well, there was like the Four Seasons, the Beach Boys. Oh yeah, you know, that stuff. Okay. Yeah, I mean, whatever was on the radio, we were absorbing. So you were definitely hooked on the radio. Yeah. And at what point does it cross your mind? Whoa, I want to do this for a living. Well, see, I took guitar lessons and that kind of— Well, a little bit slower. Right. You gave up the piano after three I years. gave up piano. I played violin and clarinet. Then I finally picked up an, a nylon string Yeah, that's how we guitar, all started. A harmony nylon string from Westwood Music. Right. And, um, you know, it just sort of rang a bell for me. I got that. And so I, when in this history, because we had a nylon string guitar in the house that we didn't play during the folk era, prior to the Beatles. And then after the Beatles, we started playing that and then went to electrics, whatever. So did you get your folk guitar to play Beatles songs or were you playing, you know? Oh, we were playing folk music. Folk music, right. Freight and, Train. And exactly. Puff the Magic Dragon. Right, right, right. And, and it was Peter, Paul, and Mary was sort of early exactly. folk music. Yeah. And 500 Miles right. and all that other stuff. Right. So you got the guitar from Westwood Music. How'd you learn how to play it? I got guitar lessons. But I, I taught myself a lot by ear. I remember just having the turntable and like putting on the Peter, Paul, and Mary record and just, you know, learning how to play it. I just could figure it out. Okay. At this point, do you feel – okay, you said you played music with your sister. Was she playing the guitar too? Mm-hmm. We were both playing. Okay. But – Outside of the, the house, were you, did you have a lot of friends who were also into playing music? No. No. This was my – I would just get my schoolwork done and then go into my own head, and that was my escape. You know? so, so you were really dedicated. You would really sit there with the records, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It was the only thing that held my attention, really. Maybe because public school was so bad. We didn't have great teachers, but – and then I was fortunate enough, I kind of outgrew this guitar teacher I had, maybe when I was 13 or 14. And she said, I don't think I can teach you anything else. I think you need to go to the fellow that taught me, who was this guy, Frank Hamilton, who was in the Weavers and taught right around the corner from here. We're in ho downtown Hollywood now. Barney Kessel's Music World, which is at the corner oh, right. of Yucca and Vine Street. I heard about it, never been there, I think before my time in L.A. It was a music store and then little cubicles with guitar teachers. So Frank, of course, was just, what an amazing talent. And you can talk about learning the real folk music. You know, he was teaching me those arrangements from the Weavers. That's where I learned the water is wide. And, okay, so you'd go for the guitar lesson traditionally a half an hour. You come home, you really practice. This was your thing. Yeah. Okay, and... At what point 
A, do you think, well, this could be a career path? You know, what happened was I started, I don't know why, I just started writing melodies and music. I wasn't writing lyrics. My sister was really into poetry. So, and we were both playing acoustic guitar. So we decided, I think this was right about when Joni Mitchell's first album came right. out, that we wanted to make music like that. So we started trying to write songs like that. Okay. For those of us who grew up outside of Los Angeles, California was a dream, okay? We had the Beach Boys. We had all these other things. We watched all the shows made in Southern California. Now, were you here realizing that you were at the epicenter of the scene, that the acts were in Laurel Canyon and you could go see them at clubs, et cetera? You know, when you're in the middle of it, you don't, you don't see that. Um, of course, looking back now, it's like insane when I think about all the music I could go hear and what was happening at the Troubadour. I mean, it's crazy that we could see Joni Mitchell play for two weeks, two sets a night in the Troubadour and 150 people in there. But I mean, it never occurred to me, what's it like growing up in somewhere in Michigan? I had no right. idea. Okay. So you're playing guitar with your sister. At what point do you start going out to hear music? Well, we were already going out to hear music. I mean, we were going to the Troubadour every chance we could get to hear okay. people. This was now you had your driver's license, or how'd you get there? She did. Okay. And she would drive us. Okay, so you would 16. go to the Troubadour. Yeah. And where else would you go? We went to the Troubadour. God, we would go to the Santa Monica Civic. There were concerts there. There was this um, place called the Valley Music Theater that turned into a Jehovah's Witnesses place <laughs> that had, like, we see the doors and Jefferson Airplane there. There was a place, the Cheetah, on the Venice Pier that had, like, same kind of acts. Um, the Hullabaloo here in Hollywood um, had a revolving stage that would go around, and they would switch the band. So it'd be like... Neil Diamond, and then the stage would turn. It would be Iron Butterfly. <laughs> and then the stage would turn, and it would be um, the Sunshine Company. I mean, all those groups. So And, okay, so you went with your sister, but was there a whole group of girls who would go at these shows that you would know, or was it just the two of you? It was just us. But we met people. We met other people, like in the Troubadour, who were doing the same thing we were doing. And there were a lot of people on those Monday nights. Okay, well, for my audience, yeah. talk about Monday night. Um, during the week, the Troubadour had national acts like James Taylor, or Joni Mitchell. Or earlier than that, we went to see people like Joe and Eddie and Buffy St. Marie. And, right, right, right. You know, um, Joe and Eddie are from Toronto. Bob Ezrin goes on to me all the time. Yeah. I had, a li I had to dial them up on the internet. I never even heard of them. Yeah, so there were acts like that. I remember Tim Buckley was of course know, Happy huge Sad, there. one of the great albums. Yeah, and Robert Klein would open for Tim Buckley. Oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> they always would have comedians. So I'm trying to think of all the people we would go see. Everything that was happening there. Um, so you're in terms of money. You're like in my family. If it was had to do with the arts, there was unlimited money. In, in terms of going. To uh, the show, where did the money come from? Your allowance or your parents dug into their wallets? I haven't even thought about that. I guess it wasn't expensive to go to the Troubadour. It probably was like $6 or $5 to get in there, I think. We never had any trouble getting in there. Okay, so it's Monday night is hoot night. Monday night was hoot night. Um, and maybe there were four or five slots then that you could get on. Just to be clear, because I was – this is before my time. So there were only four or five acts a night? 
Well, I think that the record companies maybe would put acts on, but okay. for just those of us who were not Nobody's connected right. to anything. There were four or five The slots. way you had to do it was you had to line up at the box office um, and wait for them to open the window. And then if you were one of the first four to sign up, you could get on. So I would literally cut school. I would climb over the fence at uni, go to the Troubadour, and then sit there in that little alcove by right. the window and and get my sister and I on to that thing, you know. And it was terrifying. I was so afraid doing them. But, I mean, Jackson Brown would be doing them. Or every now and then somebody like Neil Young would just come and do one for fun. I mean, and in those days, the you know, the bar was on the inside and record company people were there. And, you know, it was scary because a lot of people would see you. Okay, so do you remember what year you first appeared? Um, I was 16, so probably um, 69, maybe. Okay. Yeah. So you're there. Are you any good the first time? I don't think so. I mean, I think my sister and I had some promise. We, we could play, and I think I was writing some interesting music, but um, I wasn't singing well, and we were very young. We were and really w- young. What did you bill yourself as? Uh, the Daughters of Chester P., <laughs> and what does that mean? What's, what is it? My dad was Chester Paul Bonoff, so we came up with that name for him. Because Lisa and Carla seemed stupid. So, <laughs> Okay. So how many times do you do that at the Troubadour? We did them a lot. We also went down to Pasadena and did the, um, the Ice House. We did that. There was a little restaurant in Santa Monica called the Attica. We would get up and play there. Um, one of our very first, I told this story the other night, um, jobs that we got was at this club called Artie Fatbuckles, which was at Sunset and Gardner down some little steps. And we got hired, and um, the people that hired us said, you'll be opening for these two guys. Their name is Long Branch Penny was <laughs> And we were like, who? Um, so we walk in, and there was J.D. Souther and Glenn Fry of 23 and 19. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. 
You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Now you're there and you're having these. Are you. I hate to use the modern term, but I will anyway. Are you networking with people? Are you saying, or are you just waiting for things to come to you? You know, I don't think anybody was thinking. I wasn't. We were just excited to be playing there, and I think to be just in the environment. Um, when Jackson would get up and play a new song, it would just be amazing to me. I mean, I don't think I was really thinking about getting a record deal yet. I was just feeling whether that could be something I could actually do. Um, we did ultimately make a demo for um, Electra. I, re- I still have a copy of it. It's pretty This funny. is you and Lisa. My sister and I did. We got um, – I went to school with um, Jim Densmore, who was John Densmore's younger brother. And somehow – Of the Doors. Of the Doors. John got us an audition um, with – uh, David Anderley. Really? Yes. So we went in and they had us go in the studio and play our repertoire live. Just, you know, so I actually have a tape of us playing that and laughing and being embarrassed. And we didn't get signed. But, but what? How, do you remember what they said to not make a deal? He said that we needed, I remember this, that we were too young and we needed to go out and live a little and we were just, we were horrified. <laughs> okay, now it comes time to go to college. And you come from a family of radiologists. Right. How does that go down? Not well. Not well. Um, they just said to me, we would like you to try to at least go. I got into UCLA. Um, go to college just for one semester. Okay, but when did you decide you weren't going? Well, I didn't – I mean, at this – well, we lost a little time here. Actually, my sister and I broke up because she wanted to go back to school. So I met Kenny Edwards. How? Um, how? Uh, I have my sister – oh, here's how it happened. My sister and I decided we wanted to do transcendental meditation. Okay. So they had a big meeting at Royce Hall at UCLA, and it was an, a meeting to sort of learn about going – up to Squaw Valley for a month with Maharishi. So my sister and I went to this, and I remember spotting this really handsome tall guy walking up the aisle, and I realized it was, that's Kenny Edwards of the Stone Ponies. I mean, to me, he was a rock star, Of course, of course. And um, so that's how I met Kenny, actually. I did go to Squaw Valley, and I... I f- well, a little bit slower. Right. So you're, now you're at Royce Hall. Do you go up and introduce yourself? No, I didn't there. But my sister and I signed up to go to this month-long course with the Maharishi at Squaw Valley. I was 16 or 17. She was 19. What did your parents say? 
They let us go. I'm not <laughs> sure quite why. And so you were there. How many people were in Squaw Valley? Like 300 people. And Kenny was one of them. And I spotted Kenny, and I had my Martin guitar, and I followed him around and convinced him that I could play the guitar as well as Joni Mitchell. <laughs> so that's was he how giving, I met Kenny. Was he giving you the time of day? You know, he had just gotten out of the Stone Ponies, and I think he really wanted to focus on his spirituality, and he was not really, I don't know, he wasn't focused on me, at least not at that point. But ultimately, there was a romance with Kenny, yes, right? Yes, yes. How much longer after you meet him does the romance begin? Um, he went off to India. because Whoa, he, he was really deep into it. He was deep into it, and he wanted to become a teacher, so he went off to India. But when he came back, um, somehow we got together— and he knew Wendy Waldman and Andrew Gold from another – I can't even remember how he knew them. But we all got together and decided to form a group. So our romance began and our group Brindle began, probably 1970. And wh- why was it called Brindle? <laughs> oh, God. Andrew thought up the name and he spelled it with a Y because he was such a Birds fan. So we just went, okay, that sounds good. So it's got nothing to do with those dogs that are different colors, striped, whatever? No. Okay. So you're forming a band because everybody's hanging out, or are you saying, we're going to form a band and we're going to get a deal and we're going to make it? We were serious at that point. We wanted to get a deal and we wanted to make it, and we did get a deal. Okay, but before that, when did you decide you didn't want to go to college? I think at that point, um, it was just becoming obvious to me. I went for one summer quarter and got season Ds, and I was already so deeply in the music business at that point. Um, No, my parents were not happy about it, but I think I was lucky. I found what I wanted to do, you know, And so, okay, so at what point did you move out of the house? When I was about 18. And what were you, you know, you're a musician. How are you paying the rent? How did we pay there? I moved in with Kenny and in a house that Andrew also lived in, and we rehearsed there and started our band. And so your parents thumbs down on this? Oh, totally. (laughs) In fact, they were like, if you're going to go do that, then leave your car here, and we're not giving you anything. Wow. Um, I think they thought I would just turn around and come right back, but... I'm not quite sure how we survived. It was just amazing. We didn't need a lot of money then. You know? Right, that's different. You, you can't make yeah. it on minimum wage today, whatever your money we you could, have. We could rent a big house for $200 a month for all right. of us. And you Where know, was that house? Somewhere in West L.A., yeah. Okay, so you're living in the house. You form the group. So everybody in the group is living there? Wendy was not living there because she was living in Topanga Canyon because she was married. Right. So we, three of us were living there, but Wendy would come there. And how long after you formed the band did you get your deal with A&M? Somehow Wendy had met Chuck Plotkin. I'm not sure how she met Chuck, but Chuck got interested in us, and then he got us the deal at A&M. And you made a complete record that didn't come out? We did. We made a record with Chuck and um, Chad Stewart producing. And... What was the rationale for not releasing it? You know, I don't think they got us. We were two girls and two guys writing songs. This is before Fleetwood Mac. It was just maybe, I mean, there really wasn't anything like that. I think we were on the wrong label. They had the Carpenters. 
They had... Um, but they had Joe Cocker and Peter Frampton. Yeah, I think it was two things. I think they didn't understand what we were trying to do, and we weren't really that great yet. I think we needed to make another record. Okay, so the record, even you would own that the record was not... I think Wendy was the closest to being ready to making a record. Um, I think that it was a little disjointed. Um, okay, so now the record's rejected. Does the band grow, break up? Not right away. We ended up going and playing a Top 40 bar out by the airport called the Carolina Lanes, which was a, a nude room, a bowling alley, <laughs> and a rock and roll, basically a biker bar rock and roll club. Five sets a night, like Top 40, and then we would intersperse our Brindle songs in there. Wednesday night was Hot Pants Night. Okay, so what'd you do on Hot Pants Night? Wendy wore hot pants. <laughs> How about you? I don't think I could do it. <laughs> But the cool thing about that was I had to play. I learned to get strong as a player because we had to play all these Rolling Stones tunes and Carol King tunes. And so I had to learn all this stuff and play all the keyboard parts. And I mean, it really actually was good for all of us, I think, um, just getting strong as a musician, being able to play that much. So how long does that gig last? It didn't last very long because I think ultimately Linda had the guys go and play out in her band. And for us, that was like, you know, and Wendy got signed to Warner Brothers. So it kind of fell apart. They went and worked for Linda. I mean, Kenny was making $900 a week, which for right, us that, was right. like, oh, my God. And we started saving money. <laughs> okay. But you were suddenly the odd person out. You didn't have a solo deal right. and you weren't with Linda. Right. I would think that was would be depressing. Well, I was I was Kenny's girlfriend. So for me, what was interesting about that time was I got to go out on the road a lot and kind of watch Linda and learn from Linda, see what it was like to be on the road, be on the bus. And, you know, she really taught me a lot, just watching what she had to go through, just watching her do her makeup, watching her figure out what to wear, so you're on the road with your boyfriend and Linda, and you're learning all these lessons from Linda. Yeah. And how long does that go on? Well, I mean, I didn't do it all the time, but I, you know, I would do it on and off. And, I mean, it was really exciting. She was really, you know. Gigantic star. Yeah. And so, it w and it was, I remember when they, when Kenny and Andrew first started going out with her, they were sharing a room. I mean, so they really started right at that base of things, and. When they came back and made the record that had You're No Good and all that stuff right. on it, that was really the big record for her. But they had learned all that stuff on the road. And then, I mean, I remember when they were flying on the Concorde and <laughs> having caviar, you know. So it changed. It changed a lot. <laughs> yeah, right. It's almost hard <laughs> to comprehend. But, okay, you're on the road some. Now you're at home. You're writing songs. Yeah, at that point I really just had, you know, to figure out what I was going to do. So I just kept trying to get better as a writer. And how did you get your deal at Columbia? I actually got my deal playing a Monday night at the Troubadour. Um, I started doing those alone. Um, Norman Epstein was managing me and trying to get me gigs wherever he could, but we would still do those Monday nights. And um, I played one of those. I think Linda had already decided to do a couple of the songs, and I was at the Troubadour and... This fellow, Peter Philbin, came up to the dressing room and said, I just want to congratulate you. I love your music. I'm sure you're signed to Asylum or whatever. And, and we was like, no, we're not signed. 
So he um, had just come out to be an A&R guy. He had not signed anybody. He was brand new. So he brought me to Columbia, but it was a long road because um, I don't think they trusted him, A, because he was new. So they made me go to New York to the big Black Rock building <laughs> and actually audition. In for one, who? For all of, the, all of the people, like in one of those rooms, one of those conference rooms with an upright piano. And I'd never been to New York. And, I mean, it was terrifying. I remember I was staying in this hotel and I woke up. We got there at night and I looked out to the window and I went, why is it so dark out there? There's nothing out there. I didn't have any idea I was looking at Central Park. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, in the morning I had to go. This conference room was – I was like Bruce Lundvall and all those people. Muckety bucks. Yeah, and just play like on the stupid piano and play the guitar. I had a little dress on. And I remember they just thanked me and we left and – then that night, Peter took us to dinner, and I said, well, have you heard anything? He's like, no, and still nothing, nothing the next morning, nothing. And I went, okay, I'm getting out of here. Right. And I just, I think I met up with Kenny on the road, and it was like a couple of days. And then finally, my manager called, and he said, well, they've decided to sign you. You must have been elated. I was. And we were also talking to Clive Davis, too. So... I can't remember the time frame of that, but I also had to go to the Beverly Hills Hotel, to the bungalow, and play for Clive on the piano. And I think we were balancing both of those. Thank God you didn't sign with Clive. Well, you know why I didn't sign with Clive? Because I remember I played him someone to lay down beside me, which was something I knew even then I was really proud of. And he started trying to rewrite it. Exactly. And I said to Norman, I said, you know what? I can't do that. You know, because that's what's going to happen, like, with everything. Um, So that's why we didn't do that. Okay. So one of the amazing things about about your music is the insightful lyrics. Let's start with someone to lay down beside me, even though it's not real. Okay, which is the line. How'd you come up with that? I don't know. I really don't know. I wrote the music first. And I had the music for a long time, and I knew that was that it was good. And I just couldn't come up with any lyrics. And one night, I don't know, I watched a TV show, and I was just walking around, and I just sat down, and it came out. So it was one of the things very fast, once you were in the mood. Right. And of the tracks on the first album, were they all done that fast when the time came, or were some eked out over time? The, you know, the way it would happen for me is I wouldn't write very much, but when I would write, it would happen fast. Um, so you were waiting for inspiration to hit you? Yeah, and lyrics were always hard for me. I could write Yeah, but your melodies. lyrics are so phenomenal. I mean, you know, they, if he's ever near. They say just once in life you find someone right, that's right. But love's so hard to find in this state of mind. I hope I'll know him if he's ever near. There's so much wisdom. I mean, I'm quoting off the top of my head 40-year-old lyrics and because they mean that much to me. Uh-huh. So I'm wondering, you know, the process of coming up with that. Maybe it's quick, but what kind of space are you in to have so much insight? You know, it's mystery. You know, when I look back on being 23 or 24 or however old I was when I wrote those things, and I don't think I was all that. I think it was very subconscious and just stream of conscious. I wasn't really thinking about it. It was just 
I think I was accessing just some part of my brain that was pure and insightful. Well, that's one of the fascinating things about all these musicians. You know, we laugh at teenager musicians at this point. But a lot of the people were very young, certainly Jackson Brown when he started writing whatever. And I can listen to some of those records now in my 60s and they, I finally understand them, okay, having lived all this time. And I say, how did these people come up with this insight like at that did, age? He wrote these days when he was 16. And <laughs> I know. Had, so how does that happen? I mean – that's mysterious to me because obviously at 16, what could he know? Right, exactly. But even you, I mean, you're talking about uh, in terms of relationships, um, you know, Rose in the Garden, you know, about having a relationship and sometimes you have to let them go. That they, you know, that didn't come from something in your life or something? Oh, I was trying to remember all that <laughs> You know, I think so. I mean, I think um, – I don't know. You know, that first batch of songs for me just came – I felt like they were a gift. They just kind of came to me from, you know, some other wonderful place. You know, I still feel like that. I don't know. You know, I don't – I was never able to go, I think I'm going to write a song about this or come up with a title. Like some people come up with a title and write a song. I could never – intellectualize about writing like that. And that's why I think I'm not prolific because I don't really know how to. Yeah, but a couple of things. I mean, you know, isn't it always love that, you know, makes you cry, breaks your heart, but you wouldn't have it any other way? I mean, these are songs that really helped me through things. I mean, you know, there's some Jackson Brown lines too, like, uh, you know, well, without quoting those things at this particular point, this is not the kind of wisdom you find on a Kelly Clarkson or Justin Bieber record. And in addition, it's not the kind of wisdom you found back then, which I believe is one of the re- – I mean, I remember, you know, I've told people about that album, you know, in the 90s, back in the days of AOL chat. People say they're into music. I say, you got to get this record. And I'm not doing it to blow smoke up your ass. That's how much the record meant to me. So I have to believe you may not be revealing it, but beneath the surface – you must be a study of humanity. You must be a student of humanity or have insight that the average person probably does not. Maybe. Okay, but let's, let's stay with writing songs. Okay, your first album comes out, okay? You're writing the coattails of Linda having covered your songs. So what's it like when your album finally comes out? Well, it was interesting. Um, there was some confusion, obviously, because Linda's album had come out like six months before mine. And there were some similar musicians on the tracks, too. So um, I got a tour opening for Jackson. I did a short club tour, and then I got a tour opening for Jackson. And um, I had this moment where I was playing the songs and realizing these people think that I'm covering Linda Ross' songs. And it took me about three or four nights to go, oh, my God, I'm going to have to tell people I wrote these. They don't know. Um, so that was kind of horrifying in a way. So there was some of that confusion. But right. once, I exp- once I talked a little and explained to people and they were really on my side and it was actually pretty wonderful. Um, and people often ask me like, well, are you sorry you gave Linda your best songs? But if I hadn't, I don't know. You know, would people have noticed me as much? I mean, would my first album done as well? 
Would people have paid attention to it? Maybe not, you know. And so when know. you went out on the road, did you go out alone? No, I had a band on that first tour, yeah. Okay, so you okay, you do that with Jackson. What's the next step? Well, I did a couple tours with Jackson, and then, of course, you're in that Columbia Records time thing where it's like, well, you got to make another record. So you come back. It took me 10 years to make that first one. I'm on the road for the first time. And then you come home and you want to breathe, and they want you to make another record. And I really had maybe one or two songs, and I was like, oh, my God. You know, now I have, what, six months to do this? So it was pretty terrifying trying to, you know, really then trying to crank stuff out. I mean, I did it. Um, and I had some help, actually. At the time, I was dating Cameron Crowe. And he was so that, young. He was right, so right. much younger than me. I got to go back because I certainly know Cameron. I certainly know Nancy Wilson. and I don't, But I didn't know that was part of your history. Well, it was brief, but he was so disciplined and so good about writing every day. Because um, I think he was working on Fast Times then. It was before right. that, when that was becoming a book. Right. Um, that he was such a good influence on me because I was trying to write Restless Nights and he would write every day and so I would write every day and um, I lived like a mile down the road from him and it really helped me focus and get that record <laughs> But let's stop just for one second. How does it end with Kenny? Oh, how did it end with Kenny? I don't know. It just kind of fell apart, you know. The days of those days of Hollywood and craziness and drugs and, you know, it just, you know, we were together for nine years and it just kind of, we were great friends, but we just, our romance kind of disappeared. So we stayed friends for up until the day he died. Okay. So how do you meet Cameron Crowe? I met Cameron Crowe at the Universal Amphitheater at probably at one of Linda's shows outside um, I think he introduced himself. He was still writing for Rolling Stone. Right. Yeah. So, okay, you know, these are the perks of being famous. Any other perks of being famous? Oh, God, I don't know. You mean meeting people like that? Meeting people, opportunities, you know, once you're a known quantity. Uh, not that – I don't know. I mean – Maybe you get into first class occasionally on an airplane. Right. <laughs> that doesn't even happen anymore. Okay. So Cameron is very disciplined. So you're disciplined and you crank out the album. Right. Are you happy with the album? I was happy with most of it. I mean, some of it, that album to me has The Water is Wide. It has um, Only a Fool. It had, I'm trying to think what other songs were on that. But I thought that was a pretty good album. It had Trouble Again. Right. Um, when you walk in the room, the letter. So, I mean, it wasn't, you know, I think my first album is still probably my best album, but for how fast I had to crank that one out, I think it was okay. Okay. Now, being on the inside of the belly of the beast, um, what was the label's reaction and to what degree was that record successful in their eyes, in your eyes, commercially? You know, it was always so hard for me to tell what they thought. It was such a big record company, and there were so many big artists, Paul McCartney and Michael Jackson and other things that they were focused on. I don't really ever think that that I got the shot maybe that I should have had. I think they tried. Um, it's hard to say. You know, I mean, I think the production maybe, you know, I don't know why there weren't more hits on some of those things. I think, oh, Baby Don't Go was on that, too. I think there were hit songs on that album. Maybe we didn't produce them as hits. 
I feel like there should have been hits. Um, and is that record promotion? Is that the record itself? I mean, it's hard to hindsight's twenty twenty when you try to look at that and go, well, why couldn't they make Trouble Again a hit or Baby Don't Go It? I mean, did we not make the right record? I don't know. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The Nick's anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of Nick's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to Nick's leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky Lucky? In line at the deli I guess Aha in my dentist's office more than once actually Do I have to say? Yes you do In the car before my kids PTA meeting Really? Yes Excuse me what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky I never win and tell well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So now, you got to deliver a third album. Yeah, it was even harder. Right. For me. Yeah. And then you the, the so-called work track was a cover, personally. Right. Um, Glenn Fry is the one that played me personally. Um, I was at his house and... I don't know if you know, Glenn had a great collection of obscure R&B stuff. So um, he played me the Jackie Moore version of that from 77 or something. And I remember saying to him, wow, what a cool song. I'm surprised nobody's made that a hit. And he said, yeah, I was thinking I should send that to Bonnie Raitt. <laughs> I was like, wait just a minute there. So um, that's how that came about. Now, Glenn produced part of that album, and then he and I had a falling out. Well, that's good. He's deceased. So we could talk. What was the falling out about? I never could quite figure it out. Um, Glenn was an interesting person and volatile. And, um, you know, once Glenn decided he was not into something, then he was done. Um, I don't really think it was anything that you could point to specific. But 
So Kenny kind of came in and took up the the last half of that and helped me make the rest of that record. So it was it was a tough album for me. Okay, and then that album comes out, and you're back on the road, and what is it like? It was pretty fun, actually, because I had a really good band. I had Kenny and Andrew in my band and Mike Botts on drums and a young keyboard player, Michael Ruff, on keyboards. So we had a great band and did a lot of fun shows. So, And I had a hit record of some sort. Um, I also got to go out and open for James Taylor on a summer tour, which, you know, James is my hero. So being able to watch James every night and open for James was that was a treat for me. And okay, that cycle ends. Then you don't make a record. What happens? What does Columbia say? <sighs> well, that's when the shit kind of hit the fan for me because I think I came home from that and that album and all the things that kind of happened, and I just got really depressed. Um, and actually, looking back now, clinically depressed at that point in my life, I. Um, I just didn't want to make any more records. I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to write. Um, I didn't, I think I was confusing my personal happiness with my professional happiness. Like, why aren't I happy in my personal life with, you know, this success? And so I kind of just rebelled against everything. And I basically stopped, you know, doing anything. So ultimately I got dropped by Columbia. My manager left and went to work for a record label, um, so I had no record label, um, and I just, it took me a couple of years. I was in a lot of therapy, trying to get my life together. So what'd you learn? Um, I learned that it takes medication to get out of depression, and it really didn't exist then. Um, so no matter how much therapy I had, I couldn't seem to pull myself out of that. They didn't really come out with Prozac till about 88 Eight. or 9. And I finally, I was at a therapist, and she said to me, you know, I said, look, I'm good when I leave here. I'm good for 30 minutes. And then I get home, and it's just, I'm right back there. And she goes, you know, I think maybe you need to be evaluated. And I went to somebody, and they said, I'm interested who you went to. Depressed. Do you remember? Well, I went to a psych. Um, yeah, yeah, but was he at UCLA? No, it was just. Some okay. woman who was a I psycho, went to, I, I, I was evaluated. I went to somebody at UCLA who ultimately got medical trouble. That's why his interest was the same. Well, person. they ask you all those questions: right. Are you hopeless? Or you know, do you lose interest in things? And there was a checklist then. Um, and she said, "Well, I think you need to be on some medication." I was like, "Fine, just something." And it was mind blowing to me. Within three days of taking medication, I woke up and I went, "Oh my God, is this how normal people feel?" Do you remember what the medication was? It was Prozac. I didn't wake up with this feeling of, like, dread and hopelessness. Um, when you wake up like that, you can't work. You can't write. You can't create. Okay, so let's go back. So do you still take Prozac? No, not anymore. How long did you take it for? Quite a while. I mean, I had, you know, probably 10, 15 years. Then how did you decide to go off? I just started weaning myself off of it. And this is I your was own okay. thing. It wasn't with a professional. Yeah, I think that once my life got back together and things started to turn around again, and I felt pretty good, and just I just experimented with it, and I was able to to stay off of it. Other people in my family, not the case. I think it's very genetic. My 
mother was very depressed. My grandmother apparently couldn't get out of bed and dress herself. I hear those things about my great-grandmother, so I think it's passed down through the maternal side of my family. Um, I watched my mother, I mean, as a kid, certainly going through it. So I'm lucky that there was something for me and I well, was able to kind of get What it about your sister? Same thing for her. Right. Yeah. And so, but if you look at it externally, if you live in Santa Barbara and do you live alone? Yeah. You live alone. That sounds like it could be depressing. Nah. Well, but I mean, I stopped. I stopped uh, taking medication long before I moved up there. Okay, but I'm just talking about. Where, I guess I should ask a question. Since you stopped taking the medication, do you have episodes of depression? I've had one or two, but they're really more about something specific, which is manageable, not this other kind of low grade thing that you have no reason for having. Okay, that but makes let's you not functional. Let's go back. Okay, so. But at the time, you'd been on the road. Everything was not perfect when you started to sink into this depression. So do you think the triggers were there? Yeah, I think that I wanted a personal life too. I wanted to be happy. I wanted to be in a relationship. I wanted all this other stuff, and I didn't have any of that. It seemed like I had this music thing, and maybe I was confused about what I thought that would bring to me. And I think that was the ugly realization, which is— you know, I'm a big believer in that. I mean, you know, you're—but generally speaking, I find that a lot of acts, you know, are not whole emotionally. And they ultimately believe that, you know, music will save them. And when the music can't save them anymore, they can't write another hit record. Now, that is not your case. You ultimately wrote great stuff off of that. But I find that a lot of times. People say, well, how come they can't write anymore? They were in a different space. yeah. Yeah, I think, I don't know, I think when I was younger, I was hungry to get away from my family growing up and to be a different kind of a person and to prove that there was a lot of proving, I can do this. And then once you've proven it in a way and you've had some success, um, then you kind of go, well, okay, well, now what, you know? So I did that. Okay, so you say now what? You'd made enough money that you didn't have to worry about money temporarily. Not really. Okay, but, you know, that's a duality. You're depressed, and then you get depressed because you're not working, and it gets and, worse. And then you get depressed because you don't have any money. Right. So then you have to do something. Right. Which is basically what happened to me was it got so bad I was going to lose my house. So I was like, all right, got to pull this out somehow. i got to do something. So what did you do? I think I just did whatever I could. I tried to write songs for movies. Um I got lucky on – I met a fan who was writing – who was music supervisor for Miami Vice. And I got to write a song for one of those shows and that led to um, making some demos for a record label and just stuff started happening again. Okay. So then ultimately you make a record for Danny Goldberg. Right. How does that come together? Um, Jeff Hyman who's right. – who was a big fan of mine, um, was A&R for Danny Goldberg, and I think he sought me out, and um, I had a bunch of songs at that point. I'd put a few together, and that's how I got signed there. Okay. Ultimately, when it's all set, because the album label ultimately went defunct. Right. And before you were on Columbia. Right. Good experience or bad experience? 
On Gold Castle? Yeah. It was good, really. I mean, I think that was kind of a weird time, the early 80s, the singer-songwriters, the music was changing. And so I don't think it was as easy of a time for me or for a label like that. But there was this whole um, radio format, The Wave, which saved me because they would play all this jazz stuff and then they would play a few vocal things. So they played two songs from that album a lot. And that really kind of kept me Remember what two songs they were? Yes, it was New World and Way of the Heart. Okay. Because this album is a real return to form, obviously made on a budget as opposed to, you know, working for Columbia. But, you know, uh, Goodbye My Friend, I remember writing about that on 9-11, okay? Mm. That's certainly a great song. And the best part of you, that's got a great sound on it, okay? Still be getting over you. Wow, I'm someone takes a really long time to get over people if I ever get over them. So that was there. And, you know, it's just one great track after another. The ones you mentioned, New World and All My Life and Tell Me Why. I mean, it's a surprise because most people who've been away cannot recapture the heights. But this was something you said, well, if it was on a major label, maybe it would have been promoted to the point it would have been as successful as the previous albums. Well, I feel like if I hadn't lost those years and I had made that album for Columbia, maybe um, it would have been different. Um, you know, Mark Oldenburg produced that and he did a beautiful job. Unfortunately, that was the time of the drum machine. Right. So, um, you know, we would like to go back and redo some of that. But. Well, you know, that's one of the other things is even on the, somebody, you know, the new Hozier track, it's got a drum machine on it. Go, that's 1982. Right. I mean, can we, can we get rid of that? Okay. So you put out that album. Okay. And that's kind of the end of the new material. Right. So what does that tell us? I don't know. You know, um, I have a couple new songs, but you know, I've just kind of, I don't know, it's hard for me. It's hard for me to be motivated to do it, I think, especially in this climate. Well, that's my question. You know, you know, now you can spend all the time and make the record and ultimately find it's it's over in a day. You put it out, you get some right. ink, and that's it. Right. So is that demotivating? It is for me. I mean, I think what CDs now are something to sell on the road. You know? Right. And maybe someone will play it somewhere on a folk show or something. But so that... Because I don't just do it because I got to do it and I got to write and I'm not one of those people, it's hard for me. I mean, it's hard to make a record. It's a lot of work. Um, what about the concept of getting a publisher because, you know, your skill level is at the A level and theoretically writing a song that could be covered by somebody else? Maybe. I don't really know how that works these days. Um, well, you publish your own songs. Who right. administers them? I do. Okay, so you do everything yourself. Right. You're not with, you know, because they have these administrators like Cobalt. I mean, there's different sides of publishing. But they have, you know, Cobalt and Downtown based on technology where they say they can find all this money overseas, et cetera. Hmm. You haven't explored that? Well, I have a great business manager who they administer that and they take care of that stuff for me. So I don't know. I have to find out. I think you should explore that. Not that the business manager shouldn't get paid, okay? But it's not like the old days where one guy can go to meet him and, you know, collect all the money, right. et cetera, to have the, those meetings. And, of course, there are certain publishers who work, you know, who work tracks to what degree people are open to that. You'd have to meet with people. Okay, so if you're not the type of person who needs to write music – 
What is your life about today? Well, I'm on the road a lot um, with Nina Gerber, my great guitar player. So we've been touring a lot. Um, so I do that. Um, usually weekends. We do weekend warrior Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, I do have this new CD. So right, we'll get to that. that. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, and I live in a beautiful place. I, you know, I live on an acre, and I have gardens, and I have lots of friends, and I don't deal with traffic, and um, you know, it's good. I don't know, you know, if I made a record. What, like you say, what? It's over in a day. Right, right. It's hard. So let's go back. So now you've reached the pinnacle. You've had a hit record. You had Linda Ronstadt cover your record. You had a major label deal. And you also say you woke up one day and your personal life was not living up to snuff in your mind. All these years later, any regrets, anything you would have done differently? Knowing we can't, but oh, as we're talking about it. Well, I think, you know, we were talking about this. I think if I were – I wish that I'd had someone smart enough around me to say – you know, this time in the in the music business, it's like being an athlete. You've probably got about 10 years where you really have your opportunity. And don't worry about anything else. Just go for it because you can do all this other stuff later. And I wish that I hadn't been so naive about that. I realized that I had a lot of opportunity. And obviously the mental stuff made it harder because I was not feeling good. But I regret that I didn't really, you know, when I kind of had it in the palm of my hand, I didn't really go for it. And then what about, I mean, this is, you know, I've dedicated my life to a certain uh, path. And as a result, I got married. My ex-wife said she tricked me into it, which is a whole separate story. And I don't have any children. And it's a very different path from everybody else. And I'm willing to own that, although that forces career issues to be much more important than if you have children. So do you have any regrets you didn't go the other way, get married, have children? Yeah, a little bit. But I think I probably did the right thing. I think I probably wasn't going to be a great mother. I wouldn't be – I would have had to change everything. I wouldn't have been able to be on the road. I think if I had a kid – I wouldn't have been able to leave my kid. So I think I would have ended up quitting anyway. Right. I don't think that I was someone that could do both. And did Lisa have kids? Oh, yeah. I oh, have really? two beautiful nieces. Okay. So let's go back to the new album. The new album is very interesting because there are covers of your own songs. There's a cover of a Jackson Brown song. Why don't you tell the audience about your new album? Well, actually, the reason this even started at all was I was thinking, you know, I have all these songs, but I don't own the masters to them. So in order to license something, I don't really have any control. So it seemed like it would make a lot of sense for me to re-record these things so I could own the masters, own them. I own all the publishing, and then I could control it. So it really was done initially kind of as a business move. It I thought it was because that's usually what people it do. It was not meant to be a CD. Right. So I just thought I'm just going to go in, cut these songs. Nina and I play them beautifully, and I think – Actually, I think I'm singing better than I did a long time ago. So I thought we just take a weekend and just we'll just blow them all out. And it started to come out really good. So then I thought, well, I have all these tracks. Maybe I should do something with it. So it kind of became a CD. And then the Jackson Brown tune, I'm not sure a lot of people heard because it was on this other obscure tribute album. So I put that on there. And then I went in and cut a song of Kenny's as well. Um, and so, you know, at least it's something. <laughs> okay, but if you read the credits, 
the producer, engineer, his memories think, so I Googled, and he died at some point. Yeah, it was a pretty crazy time. I was just getting going on this. We had cut the tracks, and he had a heart attack, 49, and died. Wow. It took us a while to get back into the studio to do this. Then we had a huge wildfire and a mudslide, so all this stuff happened. But the CD did get finished with... uh, a great um, friend of Robinson Eikenberry, who's the one who passed away, uh, Sean McHugh, another great musician up in Santa Barbara. Because it's hard to drive down to L.A. and work on a record. Well, let's just go back for a second. Was your house affected by the fires and the floods? Mine was okay. But all around me, right. not good. Yeah. Okay. So the project, if you look at some of the recording dates, were done a couple of years ago. Right. So when did you decide you were going to actually release it? As soon as I finished it. Yeah, so it just took us a while because of all those disasters to get it done. Really, are there recording dates on there? I didn't even notice that. Well, there was something in there that indicated to me maybe the fact he got credits and he died a couple of years ago, which is uh, what tipped me off. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think it's just by the time we got everything finished. Okay. So are you playing some of these tracks that are you've not previously recorded live? Yeah. Yeah. You mean like the Jackson song we play right, right. and Carry Me Home, which is a new song. We're playing that. We haven't played Kenny's song yet. We need to do that. We have played it in the past. Um, we play all of those and other ones, too. So, yeah, mostly I'm touring. That's okay. Really but And then you sit there after the gig at the merch table and you sign the CDs, mm-hmm. et cetera. And you find your audience still wants the CDs? They do. They really do, and they want vinyl, too. I'm going to have to get some vinyl. <laughs> they definitely want vinyl. It's an interesting thing, though. I hear from acts that go on the road and sell their thing. You know, they say, the CD can't die. That's what I'm selling. Although I think a lot of times when it's autographed, even vinyl, the people just want it. They don't even play it, but as long as they buy it. Now, going back to being on the road, uh, a lot of people just stop, okay? So at what point did you decide – that you wanted to work? I mean, I don't think you've been working the whole last 25 years, have you? I've been working a lot, actually. Maybe there were some times I didn't in the 80s, but no, starting in the 90s, I've had agents and been on the road. Who's your agent now? My agent is SRO Artists in Madison, Wisconsin. Yes. Okay. And do you enjoy playing on the road, or do you find that it's a a drudgery thing? Once I'm up there... I enjoy it. Um, Obviously, the traveling and flying and driving, not so much. That's hard. So in a typical year, how many gigs do you play? Probably 30 or 40, not a ton. Okay. Well, as I say, I've seen you a few times over the last couple of years, and I agree with you. You know, your voice is spectacular, which is not the case with most people as their careers have gone on. You know, there are a lot of people, and I won't even mention them, you just have to go see them, even selling tickets, and you're there, and you go, wow, this is bad. I know. I don't know. I guess it's just I'm lucky. It must be a genetic thing or something. I haven't had to tune, you know, a lot of people tune their guitars down a half step. I haven't had to do that yet, which is good. Okay. We're all getting older by the minute. With the time you have left, any specific goals? I don't know. You know, I'd I'd like to figure out how to write some more songs, you know, without it being uh, something that's difficult, you know. I don't know. I know people really want them from me, and I feel bad about that because people ask me, please make a new record, please make a new record. And 
I don't know. I got to get motivated. Okay. The people who ask you to make new record are fans or business people or other musicians? Fans. No, it's always fans. Like, I put this out and we look on Facebook and people are complimentary and they love it, but they do go, please, can we have a whole new CD of new songs? Okay. The audience wants it. You find it difficult. But how much of that is what we talked earlier, even if I make it, it's not like the old days, you know, where you get all this promotion and you get all this, uh, you know, mind share. Is it that or you find it difficult to write? I think it's that it's difficult for me to write. I think if I wrote easily, it'd be easy enough to record. And um, it's just not that easy for me. But I'm also not very disciplined. I don't sit down and try. Well, it seems to me as I'm analyzing you here that you're somewhat of a perfectionist. And if the song is not going to be at the level of your other songs, you don't want to do it. Well, why would I want to do that? I don't no, want to make a shitty album. <laughs> no, no. Just hanging in there with, to begin with. Just talking about my own experience. My experience totally different. When I was in high school, Mr. Harity in the English class, he'd taken a sabbatical, which in public school, I don't know how that happened, but he took a year off. And he came back, and every morning for five minutes we had to write. And if you didn't have anything to say, you had to repeat the last three words. Mm -hmm. So I am a writer completely different from everybody else. Everybody else, the picture of a writer is, well, I make a cup of coffee, I sharpen my pencils, and my goal is to get a page done a day. I could not be doing it completely different. I got a record blasting or I'm standing in the chair. I got inspiration. I'm, it's exactly how you say you wrote those earlier songs. Okay. It hit and I got to be near the computer fast enough to do that. But I do know, I mean, I've done it long enough. I'm not going to write anything terrible, just like you're not going to write anything terrible. But you, you write it and you say, okay, this is not going to be a 10. You know, you can see it veering as you do. But two things happen. One, you never know what will resonate with the audience. Mm -hmm. You know when you hit an 11, you're done and you go, this is just great. And you'll hear it from people. But even if you have a 7 or an 8 using the, you know, this 1 to 10 uh, scale, somebody resonates. And the point is, I hate to admit it, you know, a lot of times you get warmed up. Or I had a couple of times, I haven't been in such great space myself the last couple of weeks, and I said, well, I want to write to make myself feel better. And I was out skiing, and by the time I'm done skiing, I'm not in the mood, okay? Finally, I said, I'm just going to start writing because I'm in a bad mood. And all this stuff from the last four days came out that I didn't even know was going to come out, okay? Now, you have to want to do it. I mean, I think the nature of being creative person is to be, to a degree, ill-adjusted. And the creativity is a way of connecting with people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, two things. One, when you connect with people, feels really good. But if this is analogous to your point about being a the therapist, which I know totally. You're at the therapist, you're talking up a storm, even though you can't talk outside the office. You leave, you're on the top of the world in 30 or 45 minutes, bang, you're at the bottom. Mm -hmm. Okay. And being – that's one thing I envy in a musician. If you happen to write a hit song, on one level it's a sentence. You got to play it for the rest of your life. Right. But on another level, you can perform it. Whereas if you're writing prose, you write it once, that's it. Right. Okay. So, you know, I think – there has to be a raw motivation. You know, the other thing is we all get older and we ask, well, you know, I did this. Should I be doing something completely different? You know, I'm not going to live forever. But 
the question becomes, as I someone, I mean, someone of your caliber, I have no doubt that if you applied yourself, you could get very major covers. Because we have the hip hop world, don't that's not your world. Okay. Then we have the pop world. They don't write most of these songs. And if you listen to the lyrics, mm -hmm. they're not that good. Okay. Sure, when you write a song, you have assuming you say yes, you know, you have no control over what they're gonna do with it. But you know, most people can't do it. You can do it. Yeah, I guess I'm intimidated by that world of getting your songs covered out there. It just seems like all those young artists are writing with the producers and they want the writing, the publishing and the credit. And I mean, I know some great writers that aren't getting covers, people in Nashville. So I don't know. I guess I'm skeptical. I was too skeptical. This is, you know, one of the problems if you're ignorant, you're better off because all the things you're bringing up are totally real. By the same token, if you write a hit song, okay, that will help your mood. And in addition, I can certainly say you can't change a certain word. I'm totally with that. And you also say, well, I'm not giving up 50%. But maybe even though it's a scam, you give up 25%. Mm -hmm. And then as you gain, you know, it's like anything else with leverage. The question you know, as I say, question is whether you would get off on it. I mean, I, only you can answer that. I think it's just getting back in the game. You know, I think I'm disconnected from all of the, you know, the outlets for that. So I'd have to. Have well, to I would in. say that, you know, there are no, some publishers are better at collection. Some better are better at covers. And I think having a couple of meetings with these people would show you opportunities. For, you can have a meeting you don't have to sign anything. Right. And you could also write a track. And then say, well, this is the track. I mean, you don't have to give up anything to do it. Right. Because I'm here giving advice because I'm a big believer. I mean, I find the same motivation. The internet, you know, it, there's so much stuff out there. You write something and you go, well, you know, who am I going to reach right. other than my core audience? Right. And it's somewhat somewhat depressing, for, especially for those of us who lived through an era when it was different. Right. Well, yeah, I just have to get off my butt and be a little more disciplined, I think. I know it's in there. I mean, I went to a writing coach when I had writer's block during that whole period, and somebody sent me to a writing coach, and he said, okay, I just want you to wake up every morning and just write a page, just stream of consciousness. Right. Don't, it doesn't matter what you say. You're not going to read it later or anything. Just write. So every morning before coffee or anything, just do the writing. And he goes, and then bring it back in to me, um, and then... He goes, just somewhere in there, there's going to be something. Find a line. There's got to be something in that you can use as a song title. And I was like, oh, God, he's going to give me an assignment. And so I had had a dream about my dad or something, and I wrote this thing about I always just want to stay daddy's little girl. And he goes, that's it. I want you to, okay, here's an assignment. I want you to write a song called Daddy's Little Girl. That's a great song. And I was just like, oh, I don't want to do this. It's awful. It's an assignment. I don't write that way. It'll come out bad. And I don't want to. And I went and forced this song out. And it's a great song. So it just proved to me that I was full of it, thinking that I couldn't write that way. So I think you're right. I mean, basically, if you're talented, you're not going to write something horrible. You might write, not write the best thing you right. ever wrote, but if you have those skills, you're probably going to write okay. So 
you're right. I have I have no excuse. Well, the other thing you said about my writing is different. You always want to write an 11 and you're disappointed once you've been doing a long time to write 11. But one thing is for sure, you cannot hit an 11 each time. Nobody can. But if you stay at it, all of a sudden, it's always like, you know, for me, it's like what you say, either it's a raw stimulation or I'm in the shower, something just comes to me and then it does. But, you know, also, as your point with your depression, you get older, you've seen the game. So it's, you know, it's it's not as exciting. It's hard to get motivated again. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I'm probably too much, too negative about that. But Right. I just wish I was one of those people that just, I know people that just go, I just have to write because I'm not happy if I'm not writing songs. I'm like, can you give me an injection of some of that? <laughs> okay, when you do write a song, let's say you're writing the lyrics. You say it's more difficult. When you finally do, you talk about the earlier songs coming all at once. How fast, how long does it take you to write the lyrics for a song? Maybe a day or two. So very quickly. Yeah. And not all day long, like a right, couple right, hours. Right, right, yeah. right, right, I mean, I either kind of have it or I don't. It either sort of happens or I have pieces of music that just sit there for years that never get lyrics. Well, you know, the only thing about it is when like, your music, generally speaking, certainly not personally – it resonates with people who are square pegs in a round hole, okay, in that they use the music to feel good about this. These are not – I'm not saying a cheerleader or a football captain can't enjoy your music. But people who – you know, when your fans say they want more, they want more insight. That's what – you know, we, Joni Mitchell, we wanted more and then she lost the plot and she's kind of crazy anyway. But – I don't know. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll I'll let you get up off the couch, but uh, those, <laughs> those are some of my thoughts. No, it's inspiring. I think those are good thoughts. Okay, you've been listening to Carla Bonoff. You where are you playing? You know, for the next six months. Oh, it's on our website. We're going to the Northwest. Um, then we're going back east. We're going everywhere. Go everywhere. Yeah. And these tend to be solo dates, or you? I know you played with JD in Minneapolis. But these other gigs? Mostly just, yeah, they're me. An evening with Carla Bonoff. Right. So how many songs might someone expect to hear? Um, we play almost two hours, actually. So you, yeah. if you go, you're going to hear the song you want to oh, yeah, hear. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, for and sure. And you can buy the new album. And you can also, because I know I did it, you can stream it on Spotify yes. and other streaming services. Carla, it's been wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. 
We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh my, look at that, he is! And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win! Unbelievable! When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.